What's going on, everybody? Welcome into another episode of The Hangout in the Holy Land, the official podcast of LandGrantHolyLand.com. Make sure to visit SoundCloud.com slash LandGrantHolyLand. Go on Apple Podcasts and subscribe by searching The Hangout in the Holy Land. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Snapchat. Wherever you find your Ohio State news, you can find Land Grant Holy Land. Today is Thursday, September 28, 2017, and my name is Colton Denning, and I am your host, Want to welcome you guys into the show today. Got a pretty good one. Uh, before we start, we're got some got some sad news. Uh, if you guys aren't aware or don't follow any of the other happenings around SB Nation, one of our friends, one of the contributors for Nebraska's SB Nation site, Coordination, Brian Toll, passed away earlier this week. Brian, of course, joined the show, and we talked about Nebraska about a month and a half ago to preview their season, and he's come on the show about two or three times, and he's always he always was more than helpful to us, you know, whenever anything uh, breaking news-wise happened with Ohio State, whenever none of us were around our computers. Really good guy, so I just want to mention that there's a GoFundMe page up to help with Brian's funeral that was posted by his wife. And we're going to throw that in the blog post. And if you can contribute anything, we would greatly appreciate it because Brian was always a, uh, a great help to us. And we are certainly thinking of him and his family. So just want to say that and get that out of the way that, uh, Brian, we're, we're thinking about you and your family. Kind of hard to transition from that, but we're going to do our best to talk about what's been a really busy week and talk about Ohio State and a lot of the other things going around college sports. So to do that, I'm joined by my buddy and, and a man that you have heard many a times on this podcast. His name is Matt Brown, and he has a Nintendo Switch finally. He got one. Guys, it's really fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so <laughs> glad this, this is part of my life because I have generally a close to an hour and a half commute to the office. And let me tell you, like, this is way better than a Game Boy Advance or whatever, like, crummy Sudoku app you can get on your phone because, you know, subway trains go underground, so you can't get stuff that relies on the internet. I've only, I've probably put two hours into the new Zelda game so far, and I know that that's the real reason you guys listen to this podcast is to hear me talk about video games. But let me, let me just say, if you're on the fence about potentially getting one, uh, highly recommend. Uh, thank you very much for your support of my book. Uh, which allowed this indulgence to be possible. Yeah, and if you haven't checked out the book, Matt, where can they find that? So you can still you can still get the book on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it um, on a, in a few independent books. Link to Columbtober. Uh, I'll have the date for you very soon for a book tour, where you will be able to get one live uh, from me uh, at both Reader's Garden in Granville, Ohio, and the Book Loft in Columbus, Ohio. We may be doing an event in Cleveland as well. Um, and, and some other events down in the next couple of months in both Washington, D.C. and Chicago. Uh, so there'll be lots of places here. I, you know, there's not a, there's not a video game related goal tied to this, but uh, the more books get moved, the, far, the easier it is for me to write another book. I have two or three other college football related uh, topics I'd like to tackle. And, you know, that support makes it makes it a little bit easier. So I, I hope you if you're interested in college football history and some of the, the great questions therein especially if you're interested in, in scandals and cheating, um, I, 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 I think you'll enjoy the book. So instead of tweeting at Matt and telling him his opinions are bad, you can tell him straight up to his face and get your book signed by him at the same time. That, that, yeah, that, listen, if you, you <laughs> want to just show up and yell at me for 10 minutes, as long as you buy a book, like, I, I figure that's, like, that's an appropriate exchange. That's, that, 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 that's what I'm telling people right now. That's okay. Uh, speaking of exchanges, you alluded to it. 
around college basketball, it seems like there's been over the past couple of years a lot of illegal exchanges between head coaches and uh, I, I haven't really followed the story closely, but agents and shoe companies. And for the most part right now, it looks like Ohio State basketball is in the clear. So everybody that was saying Thad Mata is bad, like, yeah, maybe the on-court product really sucked the past couple of years, but uh, let's all be thankful that Thad Mata was running a, a clean program relative to, uh, I guess, what we've seen from other major programs and what we probably will see in the coming weeks and months. It, it is kind of funny because I think, honestly, a big reason why Ohio State basketball's on-court product declined over the past couple of years and their recruiting declined is because there were a few relatively high-profile recruiting battles that Ohio State lost in part because they were outbid. And, you know, it's 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 useful for Ohio State now. You know, there, we, we, we can debate whether some of these NCAA rules are just or, or, or to what extent players should be paid if they're not being paid and everything. But the Ohio State basketball program over the last several years was a stickler about following a lot of these rules. And if we go and we look at some of the schools where Ohio State lost recruiting battles over the past couple of years. Uh, you're going to see a couple of them have turned up in this FBI investigation, and I expect a couple more of them will in the future. And and that's you know that that that's part of the game. The, the, if you are hoping to compete at a very high level, if you are not willing to, to play in this game, it does make things much, much more difficult for you. Um, and at this point, a, a fair number of really high-profile programs are, are caught up in this. Arizona is. Louisville just clean staff. I expect a few others. You know, we haven't had anybody in the Big Ten or anybody that, that's really competing for similar players in Ohio State right now. But what this will ultimately mean for the NCAA enforcement mechanisms, what this means for youth basketball, what this means for the entire like legislative structure of the sport is way up in the air right now because this, this is massive. And it's something where, like— not every single school is cheating. You're, you're in this regard. You're going to see this on Twitter a lot. There's 351 schools in Division One. Like Cleveland State's not doing this. Alabama A&M is not doing this. Maine is not doing this. Southern Utah is not doing this. There's no Patriot League bag man that's funneling money from Adidas because nobody gives a shit about you know a one and a half star recruit that's going to go play at Colgate. Um, but quite a few play schools that are recruiting top 150 kids are and. The, the the blowback from that I think is going to be immense. It's just starting right now. And the you know where that where that goes in college athletics and where that goes into college football, I think I think will be interesting questions. Because the FBI investigation is very much centered on basketball right now. And I expect that's where it's going to remain. But I would not be shocked if there ends up being a football component to this. I'm glad you brought that up because you know, the, the thing with basketball is it's always been focused on AAU and the shoe companies have gotten involved. And I know that Bud Elliott, director of recruiting for SB Nation, has written about this recently that in the past, I don't know, maybe two years that it seems like football is going more of that route. You see the Nike camps, you see the Adidas camp, the Under Armour camps, and it isn't surprising to see kids that go to those camps go to the schools that have those sponsorships. So I'm interested to see where that goes. Although I do take offense to you saying that not every school is cheating because I will say that uh, almost everybody is cheating and most namely rival you, whoever I root against. They're the biggest cheaters of them all. People, yeah, people do forget that the school that you root against is undoubtedly going to federal prison whereas your school <laughs> is uh, a shining light here in, in, in the darkness. And you'll notice that when I'm talking about being a clean program, I'm very, I'm using 
being very careful with my words when I direct that to Ohio State basketball. Not that I'm saying that I have proof of anything here, but you know, the the the, the bag band structure is very different. Let's just take a second here and, and let, let's clear this up, right? Because it may seem a little bit counterintuitive. There's a lot of money um, in terms of like you know importance for athletic departments or money in terms of profitability in college football. Ohio State football as a financial entity is enormously a big a bigger deal than Ohio State basketball is. But that doesn't mean that the economics for the bagman system are a little bit different, right? So, so for basketball, uh, if you're Adidas, if you're Nike, or if you're an agent, or if you're a financial advisor, um, you obviously want to get in early on a kid that you think is going to have a lucrative professional career. And you don't have a long time to evaluate that person's professional prospects in college. Typically, you get a year. So it behooves you to get in and, and invest in those kids early. Um, and often with the backing of gigantic international apparel companies, which is why you see some of these really big figures, you know, six figures being thrown out there for some of the Miami and Louisville kids that are, 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 are then funneled through runners, whether that's through youth basketball, whether that's AAU or EYBL or some of these other traveling teams or coaches or, or other middlemen. And, and because it's very much tied to this gigantic corporate infrastructure, it's why, it's why the money is so big. Now for football, uh, it's not quite exactly the same thing, right? Like a shoe deal for a linebacker is not the same thing as a shoe deal for a first-round pick shooting guard. Uh, and a player is going to be in college for a much longer period, right? You can't jump from high school to the NFL. You're going to be in college for three years. That's a longer valuation period. So there's not much of an, as there's not as much of an incentive for an agent to jump in on a high schooler when you're, you know, you could get injured. You don't know what their NFL trajectory is going to be like at that point. And there's and there's fewer professional options for you, independent of the NFL. So there's definitely an agent and financial advisor influence in college football, but that tends to start later in their career. It's people who are sophomores. There's agents running around programs right now within, you know, say, take Ohio State or take Texas rather than as high schoolers. So we do see a lot of bag men, but those bag men are more likely to come out of like your local car dealership or like the local Baptist church or, you know, insurance sales or something from somebody who just wants that team to be good rather than an investment from 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 Under Armour or something. Now, I think we're seeing more elements of the apparel companies over the last couple of years, especially with the proliferation of 7-on-7, seven seven, which is almost like a, the AAU version of football that wasn't really there uh, you know, five, 10 years ago. But it, it's not really the same situation here. So I, that's why I'd be a little bit surprised if the FBI gets really involved, because the FBI nailing you know, Tommy's used cars in Starkville, Mississippi, isn't really the same thing. Um, and we'll we'll kind of go from there. You know who could use some more bagmen right now, Matt? Who could use some more bagmen? Rutgers football could use some more bagmen. <laughs> and they are Ohio State's opponent. If there's any indication on what type of game this is, before we started recording, I told Matt I've been sick all week, and I spent every waking moment uh, that I could when I was doing work this week preparing for what we were going to do as a site and how we were going to approach this game. But I spent the whole week thinking Ohio State was playing Maryland this week until this morning. So that goes to show what type of game we're going to have. And if if you look at Rutgers from a 30,000-foot view, I have their stat profile up right now. One and three on the season. They started the year with a closer-than-expected loss to Washington. They played really well, especially defensively. Uh, they lost to Eastern Michigan at home the next week and then beat Morgan State 65 to nothing, and then played Nebraska relatively 
close last week. Uh, heading into this game, what are your thoughts on Rutgers? I feel like that should sentence should be quarantined, but <laughs> what are your thoughts on Rutgers? And uh, is there any reason to expect that this game will be any different than the first three Ohio States played against them since they've joined the Big Ten? Well, if we think about this, you know, the advanced stats actually do think it's going to be different from the last three games. Because Ohio State's, I, I, I think the average score is something close to like, 56 to 10 are like or, or some some enormous margin. Uh, Ohio, the Buckeyes and Rutgers have played three times. None of those games have been close. And uh, if you look at the the numbers from Football Study Hall, they're projecting I think a 25ers would cover the spread, which I think is around 30. So that would be a step a step forward in terms of, of competitiveness. That would be a Buckers, um, and and that's entirely possible. Uh, I, I watched a little bit of their football this year, and. I would say that their defense is significantly better than it's been the past, not just last year, but really last two, two and a half, three years. I, th- I think they're a lot more physical along the defensive line, and their secondary is getting much better uh, fundamentally. And you, you would expect that both because they were very young in that unit last year and because one of the things that Chris Ash was really, really good at Ohio State and was really good at Wisconsin was teaching how to tackle. Teaching how to how to play coverage, you know, and, and coaching up uh, units, especially within within the secondary. So no matter what else you thought about Rutgers as a program, it seemed like a safe bet that they were going to eventually improve there. The, the problem is that their offense is still pretty bad, even if it's a little bit better. You still have a quarterback that. Uh, I mean, Rutgers still hasn't been able to recruit and develop a quarterback. They had to bring in a graduate transfer. They're not very. Um, explosive at all in offense in fact they're, they're one of the worst teams in the country at, at, at being explosive they don't run the football especially well um they have problems with it with turnovers interceptions and and, and they got a you know kyle Bolton's completion rate is under 58 percent right now and if you're going to beat ohio state you're going to have to score i think a fair amount of points uh, or, or even really come close so i don't look at this as being an especially competitive game the more interesting question for Rutgers, I think, isn't so much what happens here or against Michigan, you know, this season. Like, I think they're going to get squashed like a bug in both of those games. The the real benchmark for this program is what's going to happen after next week when they travel to Illinois. Because if you look at the, the, the S&P Plus numbers right now, Rutgers is not going to be favored in a game the rest of the season. And I think if they, you know, they finish with one or two wins this year, which um, looks like they have like a 28% chance of winning two or fewer games this year. That's a big problem for, for the Ash administration at, at this point. I mean, you, you got a program that, that's going to be on probation for a little while. Obviously, Rutgers has a really big hole to dig out of, and they're not expecting a bowl bid this season to really move forward. But I think they're going to have to win probably more than three games to be able to really sell to recruits or, or sell to their fan base that things are improving. And uh, uh, that terrible loss to Eastern Michigan and uh, how punchless their offense has been against FBS competition so far makes that harder. We brought up how lopsided this series has been. Ohio State won in 2014, 56 to 17, 49 to 7 in 2015, and then last year they won 58 to nothing at home. I agree with you. I think that the score won't be quite as lopsided as it was last year, but there's going to be some good t- nuggets to take away from this game. Their defense has been legitimately good. They rank 23rd in defensive S&P Plus and I don't know that the competition outside of Washington has been all that great, but they've done a really nice job at limiting big runs and even the consistency of opponents on the ground. And I, I think for a team that's as good at running the ball as Ohio State is, 
this will be an interesting task to see now that Mike Weber is back, seemingly at full strength, to see what kind of the game plan is to run against a defense and a coach that knows their personnel so well. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Chris Ash, even though Rutgers doesn't really have the pieces to do this, if they kind of just decide to leave their corners out on an island and force Ohio State to beat them deep and kind of really load up the box. So is Ohio State going to stick with the plan of those RPOs? Are they going to try to try their luck and go deep? Or are they you know, going to stick to what they do best, and that's running the ball? Because I still think that their offensive line has uh, should have a pretty significant advantage over this Rutgers defensive line. But I do think we'll see a lot of just how good Ohio State's rushing attack is against this Rutgers run defense. Yeah, it's it's funny you mention that because I think that's really going to be the plan of attack for most teams in Big Ten play is throw as many people as you can in the box, uh, you know, leave your corners out on islands, do dare Ohio State to beat you in one-on-one matchups in those intermediate to deep throws. And Ohio State, you know, even if they load up there, they have the athletes where they can just attack the perimeter and make a guy miss and still, you know, move move the ball that way, especially a guy like Parample who um, – you know, a couple of, has had a couple of mistakes, but I think overall has had a very productive start to the season. Um, but the nice thing about playing a UNLV or playing an Army or, or, or playing a Rutgers is that you're going to get an opportunity to work on an offense that you're not as good at. I kind of see this happening similar to a lot of the other Rutgers games. Ohio State has traditionally started slowly against Rutgers. I think they've never been up by more than a touchdown after the first quarter. I, I Last time they were at Rutgers, and it, it was... Uh, Rutgers almost took the lead, if I remember correctly, and it was it was a one score game until like around ten minutes in the second quarter, and then like it, it blew up in a hurry, and suddenly it was like twenty eight nothing, thirty five nothing, something like that. Um, and, and that can happen quickly when you have a team that has the skill position advantage, like like Ohio State has. But like, yeah, don't don't freak out if this is if, if this is if there's another slow start in the offense, and you know Rutgers gets a play early, or if it's like three nothing or seven three, maybe it's the second quarter. I, I think that depth will eventually lead to a, a relatively comfortable Buckeye victory. Whether they cover the spread or not, I don't know. I, I, 30 seems really about right. But um, ultimately, I don't think it'll end up being that close. The score after the first quarter of the last three games has been 14-7, 7-0, and 6-0. That's courtesy of Ryan Ginn from Land of 10. So shout out to Ryan for the uh, stat. And like you mentioned, obviously, they, they've been close games, and you can see that they've gotten off to that slow start. And even though I think that Ohio state eventually pulls away what this game does from an offensive standpoint as well is it's still a conference game. And even in the first quarter, what I most want to see is now that Weber's back, are they going to stick to him and Dobbins being the guys to carry the load on the ground? Because theoretically you would think, okay, you have two different style of backs. You have JK Dobbins, who's more explosive, has better vision. And then you have more of your short yardage bruiser type late game running back that can really wear down a defense in Mike Weber. But I want to see if this coaching staff, even early on sticks to running JT Barrett in short yard situations or when they really need a first down or if they go to what we've seen the past couple of weeks. Because even though it was UNLV, I thought it was somewhat encouraging. It definitely wasn't discouraging that Barrett only had, what, six carries. So I think you'll see in a conference play environment whether they're going to stick to that 
or if that's the plan going forward, like it has been the last two or three years. And Rutgers obviously isn't the best litmus test for that. We'll see that come, I think, the Nebraska game, even though Nebraska's not very good, but still a road game at night. And then, of course, the Penn State game. But I think we can learn a little bit about what their strategy is going to be now that they have a fully healthy backfield. I think that's a really good stat to focus on because that's something I feel like Urban Meyer has talked about almost as long as Land Grant has existed about not wanting to rely on the quarterback run as a crutch. And that's often been what happens when Ohio State's offense bogs down a little bit. That's comfortable. JT Barrett left, JT Barrett right. And on, on some level, like, there is some effectiveness to this. Like, Barrett is one of the things that he does very well and doesn't necessarily show up on the stat sheet as much or his, the fan base doesn't get credit for it. He's really good at executing the, the read option. He's really good at knowing when to keep the ball. And he has really good awareness as a as a ball carrier, to, uh, both where the where – the, where the first down marker is and where everyone else is on the field, where his blockers are. And that lets him, you know, kind of fall forward for four or five yards of carry in short yardage situations. I'm okay with JT Barrett up the middle, but Ohio state's going to be more explosive, more dynamic, more varied. The more they're giving the ball to JK Dobbins and Mike Weber or uh, Antonio Williams or Demario McCall. Once he gets healthy or some of these other guys, there's, there's a plethora of so many other people that should be ball carriers and, I think six is a good number. If 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 there are more than six designed JT Barrett runs, I think that's typically a sign something else with the offense is not going as well as it should. And I think, too, having that, because you mentioned that he is very proficient when they need those short yard, yardage plays and getting those first downs, that having that as a constraint rather than as one of the base plays, I think is really going to do wonders if they decide to go that direction. So something to look out for there. Shifting to the defense real quick. Rutgers doesn't pose, I think, much of a threat for Ohio State offensively. They rank 121st in S&P offensively, and their passing game has been atrocious, to say the least. But what are you most looking for from Ohio State's defense in this game, and what do you think is going to be a big takeaway from them? You know, yeah, that's that, that's a good question. You know, and for the last couple of games, and yeah, I think really over the next two, all that you're hoping for for Ohio State, to, I mean, besides Ohio State winning, right? You want Ohio State to improve on the things where we know what they're struggling with right now. So an offense has been beaten beaten into the ground for forever. You want to see Ohio State continuing their efficiency uh, on, pa- on intermediate to deep passes, and that's improved every week since, since Oklahoma. Uh, granted, you know, last week was against probably one of the 15 worst defenses in Division One at this point. So um, that's nice, but not. You, you can't draw too many conclusions from that. And this is a much better defense. And then on defense, you're looking to see how the cornerbacks do in man coverage. You're looking to see how well they tackle in space. You're looking to see what uh, to evaluate their decision making. You know, what 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 are they able to do in run support? Where are they, what, what, how are they able to defend without drawing flags? Particularly with Kendall Sheffield, who's somebody who has is enormously talented and has struggled, I think, over the last two weeks. And, you know, hey, he's, you know, He's a redshirt freshman or, or, or whatever. He's a younger guy. So those kind of things happen. It's, 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 this is a young secondary. Um, if you're able to hold Rutgers under 150 yards passing, which I think is doable, even with Rutgers likely to be passing quite a bit uh, in the second half, I would say that's that's a very positive sign. If you can limit them to under 150 yards and you know limit chunk plays to like two, um, I think those are reasonable goals given the talent disparity here, and I would take that as a very encouraging sign moving into Maryland, who's basically going to be a triple option team at this point before you get to Nebraska and some of these better offenses. 
Yeah, I'd say that that's probably the biggest thing that I'm looking for is just if the cornerbacks can turn their head, basically just because I'm tired of hearing about that shit on Twitter and our mentions, to be quite honest. But uh, I think that defensively you'll see another big game from Nick Bosa, who despite playing really well, I don't think has really gotten a lot of chatter yet in terms of national media. I think um, if Ohio State gets a big lead in this one, Matt, may see Nick Bosa get some carries on offense against Rutgers, and he can finally become a Heisman candidate. Or a Heisman candidate. Like I'm, I'm or a Heisman candidate. Ohio State yeah. doesn't really have a defined Heisman candidate right now. Uh, folks, I'm a Heisman voter this year. I have not been shy about my ability to be swayed or to be biased or you know to be to have my vote compromised in any other way. If Ohio State has a Heisman moment, it will be difficult to convince me to not vote for that particular person. So Ohio State's coaching staff, I know you're listening. Uh, let's do this. This uh, this podcast is much like Rick Pitino in that you can buy you can buy our loyalty. We are capable of committing fraud on this podcast. Um, just some basic stuff. We're four games through. Ohio State's 2017 season, three and one, sits second in S&P Plus in the advanced stats. One of the things that I really like about what they've done so far this season, already three percentile performances above 90%. I haven't looked at a lot of other top team stat profiles, but I would assume there's, if there is, it's only two or three other teams that have done that. Of course, the loss to Oklahoma. Has there been any major takeaways from you about the first four games of the season? Are you surprised that Ohio State's three and one is is anything come out of left field about this team that you didn't expect to see or did expect to see? It's not it's not super shocking. I, I was surprised to see Oklahoma beat Ohio State as handily as they did, and I think part of that says a little bit more about Oklahoma than it does about Ohio State. I thought Oklahoma's offensive line and their secondary improved substantially from last season, and this is a team that. I don't think runs the football as well as they did last year, but if you have an offensive line that can give your quarterback enough time to throw against Ohio State's front, you're going to have a puncher's chance against Alabama or Clemson or or really anybody else that, that you could potentially face in a playoff. They're very good. Um, Army and UNLV are both terrible, and Ohio State, I, I think, did everything that you could, you could ask for against those teams. And uh, I'm still cautiously on the Indiana football is good at actually bandwagon. They're still a top 50 team in S&P Plus, and to go on the road and cover a big spread uh, in, in that game, I think, is, is a positive sign. I, still, I expect Indiana to make a bowl game this year. That win over Virginia looks pretty good for Indiana as well as we keep going through the season. If Virginia looks as good as they played last week. You want to talk about a team that surprised me a lot. That would Virginia would absolutely be one of them because I was convinced they were going to suck coming into the season. Their, quarter, their quarterback play and their offensive creativity in general just looks way better than than I thought, and quite frankly, way better than most of the BYU football games that I watched where that staff uh, was in charge with a similar caliber of athlete. I don't think Virginia's offense is above what, what BYU ever had, um, certainly not a quarterback. But, but, but everything else, I mean, I, I guess the only other thing is I, I'm a little shocked to see J.K. Dobbins is as good as he is this this quickly. I thought he was going to play pretty early but I didn't think he was going to be one of the 10 best running backs in the country after the first four weeks. Like I don't, I don't think anybody did that. That, that is a welcome surprise. What about you? Yeah, I think Dobbins is that you hit the nail on the head. Dobbins is probably, I think my biggest takeaway is that he's not only very good, he's legitimately a star and he, I just go back and watch that play against Oklahoma where he just absolutely destroyed 
that linebacker or safety, whatever it was, for OU's ankles. And for a guy to do that in his second career game and the way that he's been able to impact the offense and just bring another element of explosiveness that they haven't had for a couple of seasons, whether it's on the ground or through the air, I think has been a revelation. And he's only going to get better. And I think that we're not talking a lot about Mike Weber's return, but if they find a way to really manage that and continue to be at least consistent in the passing game, I think that those two could be a really devastating duo given how different and unique they are. I, I, I'm not sure exactly what Ohio, what Ohio State's running game is going to end up looking like by week seven. A lot of that depends on things that we can't really predict because it's tied to health. But if everybody is healthy, that's going to ease a lot of deficiencies within the passing game because that's a one, two, three backfield punch that I, I think maybe only one or two other schools in the country can really match. And uh, you can even you can look back to last year and make a case that oh well Curtis Samuel was that explosive element and for as electric as he was I don't think he quite gives you the ability on a down to down basis as a pure running back like yeah. Dobbins does so even you know with Samuel's skill set I'm I'm not sure that that was really there even though they they were a good one two three punch and we saw Samuel break off a lot of big plays especially in the Penn State game last year but before we wrap up. What we like to do before we get out of here for these previews is take a look around the rest of college football and look at the week's schedule. And there's, I think it's a quietly good week. There's a lot of stuff on tonight and tomorrow that I think is intriguing and a couple of big games on Saturday. But what are you looking out for Saturday or I guess this whole week? Yeah, um, mostly during the season, I think weekday football is bad. But I think that low key, this is a pretty interesting Friday. You got four games, and each of them, I think, have potential import, right? Miami is a team that we've, I think it was kind of forgotten about a little bit in the collective consciousness because they had to miss so much time thanks to Hurricanes. But outside of their quarterback position, which is still a little bit up in the air, defensively and, and with some offensive skill position, they are uh, capable of making an ACC title game, which is something that, that people forget Miami has never actually done, despite the vision away from Florida State specifically to have a bunch of those championship games. Same with Michigan. Both UMs still haven't been to their conference title. That's People People forget that. Minnesota, too. Um, you know, since we're going, we're going, Montana also has not. UM is actually bad. <laughs> so we get a chance to watch them again on the road against a quietly decent Duke team. Uh, as far as Friday Night Football is concerned, that's not bad. You have two like potential tire fire games on FS1 and CBS. Uh, Mike Riley, I, I think, is one really bad loss from potentially getting shit canned in the middle of the season, especially considering the administrative instability that's happening at, at Nebraska right now. Like if they lose at Illinois, it's it's you know it's not quite like as bad as losing to Rutgers, but it, it's pretty close. Like it, it, it would be hard to, for Mike Riley to come back given how hot his seat is. And BYU is like their fan base is completely in sackcloth and ashes at this point. And if they don't beat Utah State, they're probably missing a bowl game this year. And given that their ESPN contract expires in two seasons, this would be a very Ill, Ill, inopportune time to suck. Um, but it's the night game. The one that most of us aren't going to watch because it doesn't kick off until 1030 at night is probably the second most important game of this entire weekend. I cannot wait for USC to play at Washington State, a Washington State team that has a better defense than we've seen from uh, Mike Leach teams really, I think, over the last five years against a USC team that is excellent 
but now has some injury concerns at linebacker, is not super deep along the offensive line, and has kind of messed around, you know, futzed around a little bit with some inferior competition over the past couple of weeks. Like, this would be a trap game if this was number five USC at number 55 Washington State. But because Washington State's like a top 20 team this year, this is not even a trap. Like, this is going to be a very tough game. USC looks a lot like Clemson did in the early portion of last season and Ohio State did for a lot of 2015, where a lot of those pieces are there, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to be clicking the way that it should. And almost every single one of their games, save for the Stanford game, has been really close, even the game against Western uh, Michigan. And I I think that coming out of that Texas game, yeah, it was really exciting, but that that was a horrible game. And I think we learned a lot about the at least the early season deficiencies of this USC team. So I'm feeling pretty confident that Washington State is going to be able to, at the very least, cover the spread, if not walk out with with a win over USC tomorrow. What What are you interested in? On Saturday, it looks like the opening slate of games mostly sucks, but there are a couple of intriguing options later in the day. I'll let you talk about the later games. I am intrigued about Indiana and Penn State. Indiana kept that game really close last year. They held Saquon Barkley to under 60 yards rushing on like 35 attempts in that game, and I don't think that they're going going to win. But after watching. Penn State against Iowa, it was a good win. It's hard as hell to go into Kinnick at night and win in the first place. But Penn State really should – that shouldn't have been a game at all. They completely outplayed them. I thought James Franklin made some questionable decisions that were more – You don't say. Were more 2015 and 2014 than – you know. I I thought that he did a really good job at at managing the clock and some of those other – managerial duties we see from a coach he did a good job of that last year but it was really bizarre that they didn't blow Iowa out given the way that they played but Indiana their defense we saw it against Ohio State is good enough to I think limit some of the things that Penn State wants to do so I'm intrigued at that game and to see how close that is because Penn State's another one of those teams in the same vein as USC that I I think has they look good against Pitt but other times, I think that they've relied on Saquon Barkley way too much, which, hey, that is not a bad strategy. He's the best player in college football. But at some point, they're going to have to have, I think, a more balanced performance offensively. And Indiana's defense is good enough to, I think, limit the damage that Barkley's going to do and, and make Trace McSorley and those receivers and Mike Gusecki beat them in different ways. I think that I think that's – I'm glad you highlighted that. This is, I think, a really good litmus test for – is Indiana good? You know, if Indiana goes and, and, and keeps this a two-touchdown game, uh, I think our thesis stands up pretty well, uh, especially because Penn State might be a little bit emotionally beat down after that really difficult uh, comeback uh, at, at Iowa. Like, uh, Indiana's defense, I think, is pretty good. I have no idea how they're going to be able to score enough points to potentially beat Penn State, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, other potential games to keep an eye on, Obviously, the, the the big game and the one that we don't really need to introduce very much is Clemson at Virginia Tech, which I think is going to be outstanding. Maybe the best chance for Clemson to lose uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, maybe may, may longer. A, a couple of other ones here, just to you know, keep an eye on on, on the ticker. Now, I'm not necessarily saying you need to make any kind of big emotional investment in this or anything, but uh, Florida State has not won yet. And they're at Wake Forest, who is undefeated, and knocking on the top 25 door. It's at Wake. It's a 3.30 kick. There's, uh, I think this is a, a pretty s- small line. 
And Florida State's had some pretty significant offensive problems, especially with their passing game right now. Florida State should win. They should beat Wake probably 14 out of 15 times, but maybe this is that 15th time. It would not be crazy if Wake Forest sprung that upset, launching them into the top 25. We can all start talking about the dynamic claw fence and uh, making fun of the Knowles online. So that would be fun. The um, other kind of interesting one is also going to be at night. Oklahoma State surprisingly lost badly to TCU. They're on the road at Texas Tech, which is a weird place to play. And Texas Tech, I'm going to say this really, really quietly. And I, I love this Texas right, Tech Listen, team. I'm saying this with like nine question marks at the end of the sentence, but they might the defense. I think Texas Tech is good. Uh, they they could they could win. Like I mean, like before the season, I I thought that Texas Tech losing to Eastern Washington that was like the surest fire FCS over FBS upset. Like this is a two win team. Cliff's gone. Doesn't matter how handsome he is. Now like they're undefeated. They got a P five victory. They're hosting a ranked team at night. They got some momentum. Like who knows? You know. I mean, you know, we might look very stupid a week from now, but. Um, Something to potentially keep an eye on. Can't keep a handsome son of a bitch like Cliff Kingsbury down for long, Matt. Uh, One final chance for me to look stupid with a prediction. Most people are going to be listening to this tomorrow on Friday, but tonight, Texas goes on the road to play Iowa State, and I'm either going to look like a genius or a jackass. I'll say it outright. I think Iowa State's winning tonight. I do not like anything about this Texas team. They can't run the ball, or they, they haven't run the ball yet, which given their offensive coordinator, I don't know if that's a surprise, but I think Iowa State's decent enough. We've seen them play teams, including Texas, tough at home in these situations before. I still think Texas is way too unbalanced and volatile. Texas is back, folks. Texas is back. Texas is going to be back to losing to Iowa State and us wondering, when will Texas be back? Um, Texas has not... I don't think Texas has scored in Ames in like a thousand days. So that's pretty fun. That's ugly. <laughs> um, I'm probably not going to watch that because I have a Nintendo Switch now. But <laughs> I don't blame you. If you have a Nintendo Switch, if you have any other video game system, hell, I'm looking at my PS2 right in front of me right now. There are better things to watch. But if you don't have anything else to do, I certainly wouldn't recommend that you watch Thursday Night Football in any NFL products. So definitely one to keep your eyes on yeah yeah well i think i think we've just about covered this week you know a podcast going about 40 minutes deep about Rutgers football is exactly i think what not just our fan base needs but america needs right now yeah and if you want any other sort of podcast content from land grant and holy land make sure to visit the site LandGrantHolyLand.com. Visit us on Instagram at LandGrant33. Follow us on Twitter at LandGrant33. And find the show at SoundCloud.com slash LandGrantHolyLand. Be sure to subscribe, leave a review. Tell uh, tell us how much you love our 40-minute Rutgers talk by leaving us a review and a star rating. It's greatly appreciated. And you can find us all over the internet. You can send me a tweet at Dubsco. And then, Matt, where can they reach you? You can reach me at MattSBN. You can find my book, What If? A Closer Look at College Football's Great Questions on Amazon. You can find it in my Twitter profile. You can find it on Kindle. There's a bunch of chapters in here that detail the history of cheating within college athletics, 
going all the way back to the 1890s with Yale and Princeton and some nefarious deeds done by Michigan leading up to the present day along with and some fun conference realignment stuff. So if you're looking for um, a, a holiday present, if you're looking for a chance to dig into some stuff about college football that you didn't already know, I think you might enjoy it. There's a couple jokes in there too. Yeah, make sure to check out Matt's, Matt's book. It's a great read. But until next time, this has been the Hangout in the Holy Land. The spot was good. Rutgers is bad. And go Bucks.